Now that you've had 10 seconds to relax, I'd like everybody to stand for the reading of God's Word. <laughs> Today we're going to go to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll give you a minute to open your Bibles. First Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of our God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God by, that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about what they make confident assertions. Verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy, because I have acted ignorantly in unbelief, and in the grace of our Lord overflowed for, for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. My child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus, and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. May the Lord bless his words. Please be seated.
Well, 1 Timothy is a book of the Bible that goes with 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus called the Pastoral Epistles. And these books of the Bible, as you've just heard one chapter read to you, uh, give us a blueprint for what is the local church. And I just have to confess that one of my favorite themes in Scripture, one of my favorite things in life is the church. I love Jesus, and Jesus loves his bride, the church, and so I love the bride of Christ, which is the church. I love the church. The church is called the body of Christ, that Christ is the head over and gives life to. As the body of Christ, the members of the church are literally called body parts in Scripture. They are active participants together, bringing about God's purposes together as life to each other. The church is called a flock in Scripture, where we, the people of God, are called sheep who are led by a shepherd. The church uh, is made up of sheep, but it also has elders emerge who are also called shepherds, shepherding the flock of God. The church is also called a family. It's a family where you have fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers interacting together, having family times, enjoying life together, having hard times together, praying for each other. You have older women acting as mothers to younger daughters in the faith. You have older men acting as mentors to sons in the faith. Paul called Timothy his son or child in the faith. You have baby Christians. You have adolescent Christians. You have young men and young women in the church. And you have older senior saints in the body of Christ that make up the family of God. You have the church, which is made up of sinners, which are also called saints at the same time. The local church is the expression of the kingdom of God here on earth. In 1 Peter, we're called um, a kingdom of priests. We are, we are intercessors, where we intercede for each other, where we bring our worship to God as the priesthood in the New Testament. The church is where the barrier has dropped between Jew and Gentile, and we are the people of God. We are the new humanity of new creatures in Christ together as the church. The church is called a vineyard. I think the church is made up of those branches holding on to the vine in John 15. The church is called a field where you have wheat that's growing up, where there are also tares. The church is God's kingdom here on earth. It's his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. The church is a promised organism and institution that will prevail when all other institutions crumble. Do you understand that we should be excited about this program, this institution, this kingdom that Christ promises to build because it is victorious. It's guaranteed victory. Apple, IBM, your business, any restaurant, the government, um, the United Nations, all of these things will crumble and crash eventually because they are held up by man's law or man's efforts. And even though some organizations are hugely successful, they ultimately will not succeed like the church will. The church is God's promised victor. 
And Jesus, when he addressed Peter in Matthew 16, verse 18, said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not, what? Prevail against it. Death cannot swallow up the church because death has been conquered by Christ in the resurrection. There's no more sting. Uh, Death hurts. Sin and suffering hurt. But ultimately, we pass through the thin veil into eternity and gather together as Christ's bride, resurrected in glory for all of the ages. That is the church. And as you know from studying scripture, there is the idea of the unseen or invisible church, and there is also local church. What's the difference? This is a big deal difference to make, especially in the church today, because a lot of people like to check out on the local church. They like to just sort of forget that it is established and localized throughout the New Testament. A lot of people will go out and enjoy, you know, doing certain activities on Sunday as if, look, I've got Jesus and I don't need the church. A lot of people have been raised up in maybe unhealthy churches and they're used to dysfunctional families, kind of like being raised in a dysfunctional home. You just get used to that norm without experiencing and enjoying the idea that believers come together locally as a church. And to the degree that a local church is biblically based and is following the design given in the pattern of these pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, to the degree that you are functioning biblically as a local church, that's to the degree that you are a healthy, effective, successful church. Nowhere in the New Testament is church evaluated by programs. Nowhere in the New Testament is a church evaluated or said to be more successful or less successful in terms of a facility. Nowhere in a New Testament explanation of church is the church evaluated in terms of its number or size. The book of Acts, the closest thing you can come to that is where the church was adding believers to the church daily, which is a supernatural blessing of God. But in terms of gathering the most people under a specific rooftop, that is not success or failure with the church. The success or failure or health of a church is based on how biblical it is, how much it's following after this. That's how you know if you're in a healthy church. Is it biblical, and is it affecting the lives and the hearts of the people as they gather together? The local church. The invisible church is all the believers of all time, of all the ages, throughout all history who are saved. They are the bride of Christ. But that expression here on earth becomes localized as people gather together and are identified according to God's word, a church. You have youth groups, you have uh, parachurch ministries, you have, you know, Bible study groups, you have Um, you know, Awana ministries, you have all different kinds of Christian options out there, don't you? And I heard one preacher say, as I was listening to him this week, that a lot of people these days will pick and choose like a cafeteria uh, from different churches or different parachurch organizations, what's best for them. And they send their child here and their teenager there, and they go to their Saturday night service there or Sunday morning service there, and they do this, and they go to their Bible study group associated with this Christian group. They cobble it all together, and they say, look, that's my church. Is that church? Those are a lot of good things. But to be a local church is to be defined biblically as a local church. That's what I want to do over this next series of months is I want want us to become 
adept at recognizing our local church. What is a local church? Do you recognize it when you see it? And what is a healthy local church? It's very important. It's recognized by the ingredients that make up the church. Maybe this idea or illustration will help us um, launch. You know, about 10 years ago, I taught at a seminary that's just outside of Ukraine. It's called the Erpine Seminary, Erpine Theological Seminary. About 200 students in the former Soviet Union gathering together, learning the Word of God, and I was tasked for three weeks to go and teach on the church, ironically. And during lunch, we would, you know, one of the students would ring a bell and I would have to stop teaching abruptly, which was kind of weird. Uh, but during lunch, we'd go down in the basement every day and we were served boiled potatoes. That's what they give you in former Soviet Union is boiled potatoes. I guess they want you to feel like a Soviet or something. You're eating potatoes. Every single day, you're eating potatoes. Hey, what's for lunch today? Potatoes. That's what we eat. We eat potatoes. And so I was on this potato diet for three weeks, losing all kinds of weight. And so at the end of three weeks, uh, sort of the team leader of us uh, transplants took us into Kiev, and we got to eat some fast food. And we went to the one American fast food restaurant that we could find, and that was McDonald's. McDonald's, for better or for worse, we went to McDonald's to save ourselves. And, and I went in there, and the, you know, the language was different. The, the people were speaking uh, a different language. They were different looking. But the golden arches, yea, verily, the golden arches were there. Okay, it was red and gold, and there was a Big Mac, and there were French fries, and there were shakes, and the soft drinks were still soft drinks, but they didn't put ice in it, which is a weird sort of thing, because they thought ice gives you a sore throat. It was strange, but it was McDonald's, and we were saved, and so how did we know it was McDonald's? We knew it was McDonald's because all the ingredients in terms of the manual for how to make McDonald's in former Soviet Union were there. They were following the guidebook for what makes McDonald's. They had the food that's McDonald's food. They had the ingredients that makes McDonald's unhealthy for you but tasting really good. It was McDonald's. And I, I say that to say that when I went to church there on Sunday mornings, on the Sunday mornings I was there, they had all the necessary ingredients from First and Second Timothy and Titus flowing in the church. You had preaching, you had teaching, you had deacons, you had elders, you had communion, you had baptisms, you had a community of faith where people knew each other and they were living in an organic way, hearing the word of God, growing in the body of Christ. There was discipleship happening. There was evangelism taking place. People were praying according to Holy Scripture and they had the right gospel. Guess what? Local church. Local church. And it was happening there, as it happens all over the world, as it locally gathers according to the design and blueprint and pattern of God's word. Well, what we're looking at in 1 Timothy is Paul's mission or commission to his son in the faith, Timothy, to hit the reset button for a local church. The church that Timothy is entering into under the command of the Apostle Paul is the church at Ephesus. These are the Ephesians. This is what Paul, who Paul wrote for the book of Ephesians. And Timothy is going there as Paul's proxy to restructure, reestablish this church that was becoming very dysfunctional very quickly according to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 
these books of the Bible are the blueprint to reset or restructure this local church, the church at Ephesus. Paul, let me just give you a little background. Paul loved this church. He had, I don't think, established the church originally. I think Aquila and Priscilla did as they came and ministered the word of God to Apollos. The church at Ephesus was born. But Paul, in his third missionary journey, is said to have been with the Ephesian church. This is Acts 20. With the Ephesian church for three years, where it says he taught them the whole counsel of God. He never shrinked back from teaching them doctrine. He taught them the whole enchilada, Genesis, to wherever he was in New Testament teaching. It all, all the teachings of Christ went to this church. And it says that he admonished them in tears night and day for three years. The scene in Acts 20, if you'll turn over there, is a very emotional one where Paul was with these elders, believing that quite probably he would never see them again. He called the elders to a little port city called Miletus, met with them, loved them, and prayed with them, giving his heart because there was soon to be a prophecy given to Paul where Paul was going to be put in chains and delivered to Roman imprisonment. And guess what? That was going to happen. And we know that from our study in Philippians that Paul went after his third missionary journey under house arrest. And he was there for about five years writing the prison epistles, which Philippians is one of them. And so what happens is, is right before he's going to jail, Paul, under the inspiration and influence of the Holy Spirit, is seeing the future about what's about to happen to this church. He's invested three years in them, and something bad is going to happen. Basically, the leadership is going to be influenced by some wolves. Look at verse 28 of Acts 20. It says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's a word for elders also. To care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. Look at this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Look, Paul had skin in the game. He loved these people, and he called them a flock, but he realized that fierce wolves were going to come in. These are people who fly in under the radar as false leaders, false teachers who twist Scripture for their own gain, for their own manipulative reasons. Sometimes these false teachers don't even know that they're being false teachers. I think that's often the case because Paul even says that some are even going to rise, verse 29, in and among you. In other words, there are going to actually be some of those leaders he's praying with that are going to go corrupt. Five years later, after Paul got out of prison in Rome, he was able to actually see that this is what had happened. We'll read about this in First and Second Timothy, that the church had gone bad, that there were false teachers, and he decides instead of staying there and riding the ship to leave his gun there to take over, and that's Timothy. I think sometimes Timothy gets a bad rap because Paul is exhorting Timothy to be bold, to be strong, to be courageous. We think of Timothy as this timid person. But guess what? Timothy was Paul's 
best disciple and the best one suited for this job. Uh, Paul did not sacrifice the church at Ephesus to move on to Macedonia. No, he left his very heart and soul there. And to give the best attention to the church, the most attention to this church, he left, he left Timothy. Timothy, it means, uh, as a word, one who honors God. And that was Timothy. Acts 16 talks about how Timothy was a disciple of the Lord that Paul, on his second missionary journey, found. And he literally adopted Timothy as his son in the faith. Because 1 Timothy 4 which is years later, identifies Timothy as a young man. Earlier in his second missionary journey, when he found Timothy, Timothy must have been a teenager at that point. Timothy found this young teenager and took him on as a disciple to be his mentor, to pour his life into this young man. Timothy was with Paul through Berea, through Athens, through Corinth, Thessalonica, Timothy in Hebrews chapter 13, 23 was said to be in prison because that verse says he was taken out of prison. So Timothy suffered with Paul. Timothy took the shots that Paul took alongside of him. And Paul invested his very soul into this young man. And this man now probably was in his early or mid-30s, but was still called a young man to take on a task of this magnitude. A very serious and sober task was Timothy left at the church of Ephesus. But Timothy would be likened not to some timid disciple, you know, who was either going to make or break the moment. Timothy would be like a Navy SEAL in the Navy. Special ops going in for Paul to do a very strong job as a strong young man in the faith. He'd been raised by Lois and Eunice. His mom and his grandmom, his mom Eunice and Lois are said in 2 Timothy to have raised him in the scripture since infancy. He knew the word of God. The scripture had made him wise to salvation. He was equipped, battle-tested, and ready for this mission in 1 Timothy. What's the first mission given to Timothy? What's the first exhortation? What's the first foundation stone that Timothy needs to relay in this church that's cracking and crumbling is to put the doctrine in order. That's number one. The doctrine of the church. He's called to guard it. Look at verse three. As I urged you when I was passing, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Verse 10, all this sin list leads up to this statement at the end of verse 10. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's what Paul starts talking about right out the chute with the church. How do you make the church strong? Make sure the doctrine is healthy. The word sound with sound doctrine is a um, metaphor, or you could use this other word for sound as the word healthy. Healthy doctrine means healthy church. Healthy, sound doctrine. I think doctrine gets a bad rap a lot of times in the church these days. People say, well, look, give me Jesus, but don't give me doctrine. No more doctrine. There's too much doctrine going on. You know, just give, me, just give me the Bible. Just give me the pure word. Don't give me doctrine. I don't want any doctrine. Give me Jesus. Well, 
Let me put it to you this way. Doctrine is the gospel. The word didaskalos is the teaching. And there is inspired doctrinal statements throughout the New Testament and throughout these epistles that are teachings about Christ and the gospel. And any teaching about the inspired word of God is doctrine. That's what we're talking about. The teachings of the very gospel or about the gospel. That's doctrine. And I'll show you that in the scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, again, starting the second epistle here, 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul starts the epistle off in the same way. Look at verse 13. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words. So there's a pattern of teaching that Paul was exhorting Timothy to follow. This is the pattern of sound, healthy words or sound, healthy doctrine. Paul exhorts Timothy to guard the good deposit or guard the trust. Why is this important? Well, listen, it's so important that I want to call doctrine here the concrete slab of the house of God. If you have a cracked foundation or you have a shifting slab then guess what's going to happen to the house you're suddenly going to see cracks in the house in the walls and I've seen this where where houses literally that are built on a shaky foundation or are sliding off the hill they they begin to create cracks throughout the sheetrock and the only way to make that house strong again literally is to drill down underneath the foundation and lay strong piers of concrete underneath to rebuttress the foundation to save the house. If you've ever seen on the news at the Outer Banks of North Carolina, Nags Head, Kitty Hawk, Hatteras, these homes that are built on the seashore, when the hurricane force winds come and these homes literally slide off of their foundation into the ocean. That's what happens when the doctrinal foundation is let go. And so Paul is beginning this mission to Timothy by saying, listen, you need to have strong doctrine. Where, you know, anywhere um, you f- see in Scripture the statement, this is a trustworthy statement, that's where you have doctrine, inspired doctrine. I want to show you that this is important. It's not just the books that are out there in the bookstore as doctrinal books. It's not just what we write as doctrine or explanations about scripture that's doctrine, but doctrine is literally the teaching of the gospel that's found in scripture. That's the foundation for doctrine. Summary statements about the gospel. Summary statements about Jesus. Summary statements about church leadership. Summary statements about the themes of redemptive history, Genesis to Revelation. This is doctrine. This is what we hold dear for a healthy church. If you look at verse 15 of chapter 1, here's a doctrinal statement. And it's under the phrase, this is a trustworthy saying. It's repeated throughout the pastoral epistles. Anywhere you have this is a trustworthy saying, you have, you can put all your eggs in this basket doctrine. Verse 15, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, which is eldership, he desires a noble task. This is the doctrine of gospel leadership in the church. First Timothy 4, verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And then you see in verse 10, it says, To this end we toil and strive because we have, set, we have our hopes set on the living God. Look at this, here's doctrine. 
who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. You know what this is? This is the doctrine of the atonement, the general salvation of Christ offered to the whole world and applied specifically to everyone who believes. 2 Timothy 2.11, another place in scripture where you see a trustworthy saying, Verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. Now here's the doctrine of growing in grace or the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. If we've died with him, verse 11, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. It means that you were never saved in the first place. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. These are doctrinal statements. Titus 3, actually look at Titus 1, verse 9. This is talking about elders, leaders. What are they responsible to do? It says, he must hold firm the trustworthy word. That's doctrine, as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. Titus chapter 2, verse 10, another picture of doctrine here it's that in evangelism we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior we're to wear our doctrine we're to live a life that connects with the gospel now first Timothy or Titus 3 will close with our doctrinal study with this verse 3 it tells you how bad you once were being foolish and disobedient verse 4 God, our Savior, appeared. That's Jesus Christ. Verse 5, he saved us by our works. No, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing, regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Look at verse 7, doctrine, so that being justified by grace, you might become, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. It's a doctrinal summary. Doctrine. Paul is possessed with the idea that Timothy and Titus need to reestablish churches locally with the concrete slab foundation of unadulterated, healthy, sound, pure, airtight doctrine. Doctrine. You need to know doctrine as a church. We need to be established in doctrine as a church to be a healthy church. And let me say this, just because you have a good doctrinal statement doesn't mean you're a healthy, sound, biblical church. You can have things written down that aren't being followed. As a local church, you have to know the gospel, you have to embrace the true gospel, you have to love the gospel, you have to defend the gospel and follow the gospel, and the gospel should be penetrating your heart and your life where you're transformed. And you know that a healthy church is healthy when you talk to the people at the church do they know the gospel do they know what they believe and are they being transformed by the truth to know jesus more and more corporately in the corporate community of the faith where do you want your kids to go to church well my kids go to a church where the doctrinal concrete slab of the church is strong you send your kids to a weak church you allow your kids to go to a weak church you influence your kids in a way that's you know hey who cares just pick a church who cares then Bad things are going to happen. Their foundation and their walls are going to crack. 
Who are you, who are you choosing to marry? When you, when you date people and you're looking to marry someone, you should be thinking in terms of their doctrine. If you have a different doctrine, you're going to have a world of hurt when you're trying to work through issues, when you're trying to train your children into how they're supposed to believe. You want people that not only are Christians, but Christians who are aligning themselves doctrinally to get married. And where do you want to send your young um, married kids off to church to? You want them to choose godly local churches. You want your kids to go to college. You want them to not only find a good college, but a good local church. You want your grandkids to go to a good, godly, solid local church. How do you identify that? By the building? By the number of people that are there? How do you evaluate the church? By their doctrinal statement? Well, those are good things. I mean, I like there to be numerical growth. I like there to be a good facility to worship in. I can tell you some things about a church, but ultimately you want to know, are the people being trained and responsive to good, sound, healthy teaching? Scripture. This is what Paul was very concerned with regarding this church. So let me ask this question. What's lost when the church lets sound doctrine go? What's lost? A lot. A lot. If you've ever seen a church just kind of go flaky or liberal, you know it's a very sad thing. People make Christianity into do-gooding or social activities. People forget about eternity. People forget about souls. People forget about Christ. Anytime you say anything about Jesus, that's the doctrine of Christ. It's either truth and true doctrine, sound doctrine about Christ, or false doctrine about Christ. Where Christ becomes this hippie Gandhi person that we're supposed to kind of be like, that's way different than the Alpha and Omega God-man that's resurrected as our king that we're to worship. And so anytime anybody says anything about Jesus, that's doctrine. You want healthy doctrine. So here's some of the things that Paul warns Timothy that are going on that need to be corrected at the church at Ephesus, and it's what's lost when a church lets doctrine go. Verse 3, you are to charge, Timothy, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. When doctrine is let go, you get another doctrine. It's a heterodidoskalos, another, a different doctrine, a different gospel. Um, maybe one way to illustrate this is all the different colleges that started off Christian that went liberal. When J. Gresham Machen, who was the founder of Westminster Seminary, formerly he was a Princeton seminary professor, and that was the solid gospel pastor-sending seminary in the early 20th century. It's where you have B.B. Warfield and J. Gresham Machen and all these sort of authors that were strong in gospel. Well, that seminary went liberal, and when it went liberal, Westminster Theological Seminary um, was started. And J. Gresham Machen said this, look, with Christianity, you don't have conservative Christianity and liberal Christianity. What you have is true Christianity and something that is a, another religion that's using Christian words. Serious stuff when things go liberal. A lot is let go. You know, Harvard started off conservative, went liberal, and Yale, in part, was rising up and rose up as an educational institution, in part as a corrective to Harvard. But that's academic institutions. It's far sadder 
more sad when the church goes liberal and lets doctrine go, when it becomes a different animal, where you have a different Jesus and a different gospel, as 2 Corinthians 11 talks about, where Paul was exhorting Corinth not to trade in the true Jesus or true gospel. Well, number two, or B in your outline, the church wastes a lot of time on things that don't matter. When doctrine is let go, the church gets in the mire and muck of programs and endless gobbledygook, doing all kinds of things, running after itself, chasing its tail, not doing any good for anybody when doctrine is not at the center of things. Verse 4, nor to devote, he's charging certain persons not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You have they have these leaders that were beginning to strain at gnats, examine their navel, people who are like reciting the Greek New Testament under their bed in the fetal position, right? I mean, you had these bad leaders who were saying, look, with this hyper sort of Gnostic view of the Bible where they're sort of missing the main point of the gospel and going off into their own intellectual elitism, they were basically wasting everybody's time. And you'll see this in Barnes and Noble and different places in the religion section. You know, the Gnostic book of Jude, this or that, or, or Bible codes where you can go into the original Hebrew and connect letters together to find Yahweh in a diagonal circle. I mean, you have these movements where people are missing the main point of Scripture and saying this is a holy supernatural book just like any other book. And if you scrutinize the genealogies or, or think about how many angels are on the tip of a pinhead, then you have something real that will change your life. Or the Bible becomes anti-intellectual where people are these hippie Jesus followers that are saying, look, you know, you really can't know anything. It's all about mystery religion and feel good. And so let's just save the world and, you know, save the animals here on the planet and worry about things that really matter here now. Is that the gospel? I mean, it's not that we're supposed to not study the Hebrew and Greek, and it's not that we're not supposed to think hard. We are. It's not that we're not supposed to be a part of good movements here in our world where we live today. But first and foremost, we're supposed to talk about the gospel, which talks about the eternity, the eternal state of man, whether they're going to heaven or hell, whether they are part of the kingdom here and now, witnessing to people, being salt and light, so that eternity will be filled with Christians. That's the gospel. That's what you see outlined through First and Second Timothy and Titus, the doctrine of the gospel. I don't want to waste time. I don't want to strain at gnats. I want life change. And life change stops happening when doctrine is let go. Look at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You know, one of the Greatest things that I've experienced since I became a Christian at 17 is I've had a clear conscience. Clear conscience. I was riddled with guilt and horrified by my own sin as an unbeliever. Now, I would harden my heart. I would sear my conscience like a false teacher. I would, I would harden up and embrace myself for the pangs of guilt that were entering into my soul as I sinned. But guess what? When I became a Christian, I got to be authentically real with people 
and especially people that love Jesus. It was a, a, just sort of a breakthrough in my heart where I could be myself and, and love God and accept God for, uh, accept myself for who God had made me to be. And I began to use my gifts in an authentic way and my heart began to fill up with satisfaction. That's sincere faith. I began to love people that were different than me when I became a Christian. That transformation foundationally happened by me hearing sound doctrine. When you don't have sound doctrine, you have religion and you have Pharisees and you have, you have the older brother and the prodigal son, Pharisees, and you have rebellious people who don't care, who are just let go, who are spinning out of control either in religion or licentiousness, rebellion. But what we're supposed to have is what the stewardship from God verse 4, brings, which is a protection of sound doctrine, which softens hearts, issues purity, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Well, what happens when you let doctrine go is you have a different gospel, you have people wasting a whole lot of time in church, you have faith and love that isn't happening, and then letter D, the church leadership fills up with pride. You see this in verses 6 and 7. Certain persons, by swerving from these, by swerving from faith and love, which is founded in doctrine, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Again, wasting time, building up what verse 4 talks about, a bunch of questions, a bunch of speculations, a bunch of a lack of confidence in truth. You know, deconstructing the Bible and, and questions that need to be destroyed they arise in the church, people swerving from these, wandering away. Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding. Look at that. Just stop there. Teachers of the law. I, you know, people who, as verse 7, are going to make confident assertions. It's people who say, look, thus says the Lord, but they haven't studied. They're saying, look, this is what God wants for the church, but they have no concept of what the Bible says the church is supposed to be like making confident assertions. Think about Judas Iscariot. How confident was he in leading the Romans to find Jesus at night by kissing Jesus on the cheek, saying, look, here's the rabbi. That was a confident, bold assertion to give over the Son of God to be murdered. Diotrephes in 3 John, who wanted all the praise and all the honor to go to him as a leader boastful, arrogant leaders who are being confident. When you look at health, wealth leaders on TV, when you look at people who are name and claim it, when you look at Benny Hinn or these people, they're confident, they're bold, they're making bold assertions. This is of God. And it condemns them all the more. Bold assertions without understanding. The only confidence leaders need to have in the church is the confidence that's founded on Scripture. This is the source of our confidence. This is the source of why we do what we do. Everything that a leader does needs to be based on the Bible. Why do we do church the way we do church? Well, it's because we're trying to follow the pattern of holy scripture. That's the goal, and that's the mission. Well, when you lose your leadership, then the body of Christ, our next point, becomes completely unaccountable. Look at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Let's stop there. 
when you lose good leadership, you lose um, good teaching from Scripture. And what was, go what was happening here is basically Paul was saying, look, um, people are letting the, the gospel go. And so now there is no accountability. You ever heard the gospel where there's no repentance, no call to faith in Christ, where, where someone says, look, you need to repent of sins to know Jesus. People let the gospel go. They emphasize grace without emphasizing any accountability from God's law. Now, the scripture here is clear. He says that the law is good. I think there probably was an accusation to say, look, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant law, the Ten Commandments, they don't in any way apply now to the New Testament church. So we're just going to forget about calling sin, sin. We're just going to enjoy grace in Ephesus now. Let's just live large in this Christian community and not talk about sin whatsoever. Now, Paul is quick to say, verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. He's saying, look, don't think that I'm saying, Timothy, that you're supposed to make a bunch of Pharisees who are law keepers. People who are saved are not law keepers. You're not trying to obey your way into the kingdom. Uh, the law is not meant for that. It's not meant for, you are justified by grace. You're saved and transformed from the inside out, not by being some obedient Pharisee. However, don't forget the fact that the law is given to convict. And the Old Testament law, yes, it was fulfilled in Christ, but the New Testament redefines the law in terms of the law of Christ. And so as you obey and run from these sins that are restated in the New Testament, you're really running from sin to Christ, and that's the law of Christ. It's what Romans, in Romans 11, calls the law of love. I think it's Romans 13, the law of love. It's the law of Christ, and it's applied to those who are lawless, people who don't care. Look at verse 9. They're lawless, disobedient. It says, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Literally, striking means striking a blow of death. People were killing their parents and getting away with it. Wow, right? For murderers, verse 10, the sexually immoral, for those for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Look at this list in verse 10. You know what this is saying? It's actually saying a couple things here. One, that you have a sin list for those who were sleeping together in heterosexual immorality, and you have those who were in homosexual immorality. It kind of puts them on the same par in a group listing here. It's pointing out that all sin is sin, and all sin is what we can be redeemed from, whether it's homosexuality or heterosexuality, whether it's general lying or being a perjurer, somebody who's in court actually lying under oath. There are degrees and variations of sin, but it's all in the same pot, and it all sends people to hell unless they repent of it and are transformed by the glorious message of the gospel, enslavers, people were stealing people and taking them into slave ship. I mean, you, you have, or enslavement, you have, um, you know, people who are involved in sex trafficking. You have all kinds of this stuff going on in our world today that was happening in the ancient world, and the church was just letting it go. The church was just turning a blind eye to sin, and the world had crept into the church, and so the law of Christ needed to be applied and people needed to be held accountable. 
people who were unsaved, and people perhaps who were saved who were acting like the world who needed to repent. So, the church wasn't being held accountable. It needed accountability. And then, verse 11, the church loses God's glory. What do you lose when you lose sound doctrine in the church? You lose the glory of God. Verse 11 says, in accordance, this is sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The sound doctrine, healthy teaching about what? Verse 11, healthy teaching about the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Do you realize that the glory of God is manifest to the, to the degree in the local church, the glory of God is manifest to the degree that the local church is faithful to the gospel? You want the glory of God to light up in this place? Then we need to be faithful to sound teaching, faithful to healthy doctrine. That's what changes your life. That's what will change our kids' lives. That's what will leave a legacy of health in God's church. You know, the church becomes invisible because people are not boldly standing for truth. When you boldly stand for truth, the church becomes recognizable, It becomes the accountability to a culture, and it becomes local, where you're standing for truth, and the glory of God is present. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel, that book, throughout chapter 9 and other places, it talks about how the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, left the temple. Where did it go? Well, the glory of God in John 1.14 came back in Christ. John 1.14, where he was full of grace and truth, full of glory. And then it was ultimately established in God's kingdom work, which is now the church, Acts chapter 2, where the pillar of fire rested above each head of the 120 who were in the upper room, and the glory of God was manifest in the church. And to the degree that we are clinging to, holding forth, shining forth the word of life, the gospel, that's to the degree that the lamp is turned up and our glory is brightly shining as a church that loves the truth. Lastly and sadly, what is the last thing chapter 1 talks about that's lost when you lose doctrine? We're going to skip a section and come back to this um, section, verses 7, uh, I'm sorry, verses 12 to 17. We're going to bring us back to that next week, but look over at verse 18. The last thing that's lost is people and their souls. Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. He's saying, Timothy, be a godly leader. Wage the good warfare, uh, literally, is strategize the good strategy. He's saying, Timothy, act like a general over an army and wage a good campaign here. A lot's riding on this. The pastoral epistles were not just specifically written to Timothy. They were written to Timothy in this laboratory example for all the churches of the New Testament to follow. And so a lot is riding on how Timothy leads this ship, saying wage the good warfare as a good army general. Holding faith. In other words, keep believing the gospel and a good conscience. Live a life of pure morality. And then, by the contrast, you have false teachers. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. How bad is this? This is not just 
oh boy, you know, throw the anchor down. The ship is uh, kind of breaking apart. Let's get in the lifeboats. No, shipwreck back then is like being on a 747 that goes down into the icy Pacific Ocean. You're going to die if your ship wrecks, typically. And so he's saying these leaders in the church have died spiritually. And they've been reigning death at the church of Ephesus. They're cancer within the church, and they needed to be excised. Literally, Paul performed apostolic church discipline on two men. It says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. Now, this could be church discipline that is the ultimate severe discipline for Hymenaeus and Alexander to come back, but we don't know. I wouldn't want to be them regardless. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is another place where Paul handed someone over to Satan to teach them so that their souls would be saved utterly or or ultimately. It was a person who was uh, involved in egregious immorality that was incestuous. That's 1 Corinthians 5. And what it is is it's when someone is taken out of a local church and forbidden the privileges of a local church, and is put out in Satan's world to fare on their own. And that's what he's doing here to Hymenaeus and Alexander, saying they are put out of church leadership. They are not allowed in because they're harming the local body. And I would not want to be them. I kind of put them in the same category that Judas Iscariot was in. It would have been better for Judas to never have been born in the first place because he had an eternity in hell or is in eternity in hell having followed Satan. So these are some sober themes and one specifically very sober theme and that is that we are called as a church to have healthy doctrine. Listen, uh, the church, whether it's effective or not, is not based on size or facility the effectiveness of the church should always be evaluated in terms of how biblical it is. Is it following God's word and is it following and founded on the concrete slab of the gospel? I believe we are, but I believe we can strengthen it more. And I believe Anchorage Grace Church can be a church in Anchorage where it's a very transient community, but we are a family of God that is local and here and we have a testimony of holding firm to the truth of the gospel. We don't pull punches. We call sin, sin, but we also honor the grace of the gospel where people come from all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of ways of life, and they are saved by the grace of the gospel here. We're not here to make the church more worldly, more programmatic, more slick. We want the church to be otherworldly. We want it to be the kingdom of God on earth where Christ reigns as king. And I'd ask you, if you have not yet joined up in your heart or even formally as a member, I would ask you, commit. Not because this is a perfect place, but because I believe the leadership here and the body of Christ here is striving to be biblical. Let's bow our heads and our hearts as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together now. Um, I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians. And if the men will come forward to wait on us as...